I am mining investor and editor of Resource Stock Digest, Gerardo Del Real, along with my partner, Mr. Nick Hodge, who's also an investor and the publisher of Daily Profit Cycle. This is the 209th episode of our weekly therapy session that we call Investing in Bizarro World. We're going to talk markets usually. Uh, we're usually talking about what we're investing in, and that will be the case this week, but we have a special guest. We are dedicating this podcast to all things uranium. I just got back from PDAC. It was an interesting energy around the uranium space, to say the least. Mr. Hodge, you want to introduce our guest? Sure. Today we have uh, Justin Hune of uh, Uranium Insider. If you're uh, an investor in uranium, you've likely come across him either on YouTube or on Twitter, or perhaps you subscribe to uh, his newsletter. And uh, considering he's the Uranium Insider, figured he was the guy to come on and talk about uranium. Justin, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Good. Fantastic. Uh, let's get right into it. Um, an interesting time to, to be a uranium investor. Um, I don't want to date the podcast too much, but the, the uranium stocks have been soft as of late. Um, uh, I guess before I get your take on, on the market, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and, and tell us, I guess, why you are the uranium insider. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Justin Hewn. I've been operating this uh, this uranium insider newsletter since August of 2019. Um, I've been in the, in the markets a bit over a decade. I've been following this space since. Well, I first learned about the thesis for uranium um, and nuclear energy, generally speaking, in late 2016, which was within within 30 days of the actual bottom for the commodity. Uh, bottomed in in December of 2016 at uh, uh, about 18 bucks a pound. Um, it's, so you're it's lucky as well. That, yeah, yeah, lucky as well. Right. Well, I didn't start <laughs> investing right in that moment, but that was okay because some stocks kind of bottomed around the commodity, but most of them did not. They continued to to chop sideways and then, of course, down towards March 2020, which that was the bottom for most of the stocks in in the uranium space and elsewhere as well. Um, but no, it was a space that I was originally interested in due to. Um, you know, the, the, the obvious returns that a number of investors made in the previous bull market for uranium, it's kind of a famous or infamous story, uh, 2004 to 2007, roughly, you know, there was maybe a dozen stocks in the space at the beginning and close to 500 by the time the market peaked within just, you know, less than four years, <laughs> some of the stocks went up, you know, multiple thousands of times. Um, it was a crazy market. And so I learned as much as I could about that market and a lot of the, uh, a lot of the folks that were following the market around the commodity bottom 2016-ish believed that this the cycle would return, right? As most commodities do, they'll cycle up and down. You go through periods of, of oversupply and falling prices, and then you have undersupply and rising prices, and that's just kind of the, the cyclicality of every commodity is really kind of how it is. And there's nothing unique about that with uranium. What's unique about it with uranium is there's been um, various elements of not only secondary supply, but secondary demand over the years and over the various markets, and that it moves very, very slowly. So there's not really a futures market. Um, it's one of those commodities where, as compared to oil exploration and drilling, where you can actually pull it out of the ground relatively quickly, uranium, you know, the average time from a legitimate discovery that's mine-worthy going from discovery to production is, you know, at least 10, sometimes pushing 15 plus years. Depends on the jurisdiction, depends on where that discovery is in the cycle. But generally speaking, it's a very, very slow commodity to respond to rising prices. And that's so far been the case with this market as well. Now that we've seen the commodity go from 
18 bucks a pound to $50 a pound in the spa market right now. And, um, but just to kind of finish briefly my story, I continue to follow the, the, the trade and the sector got pretty excited about it. Uh, learned a lot about nuclear that I didn't know, uh, at the beginning. So, um, I, I essentially knew nothing about it when I first discovered this investing opportunity. And since then I've become, uh, an outspoken advocate of nuclear energy it's it's the cleanest, safest form of electricity that's ever been conceived by mankind. Um, in my opinion, it's absolutely crucial to the future of humanity. Um, and so it's a feel-good trade for me as well on that front. And since that period of time, it, the thesis has kind of gone from a, okay, the commodity's trading well below the cost of production. It has to go up or the lights go out, kind of the famous Rick Rule sort of uh, 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 saying there. And I was betting on this sector eventually going from absolutely terrible to just bad, which it did. <laughs> but over the past three years or so, it's it, we're now kind of in the midst of what seems to be the early stages of like a, a renaissance for nuclear <clears throat> energy. We're seeing multiple countries return to nuclear energy and or embrace it for the first time. Life extensions for plants in multiple countries. Uh, we're seeing the environmental political left embrace nuclear as a low carbon solution. Then we've been hit with an energy crisis over the last 18 months where nuclear has been a, a key component in maintaining grids to the extent that they exist on those grids. Um, so it's it's kind of like I kind of pinch myself really uh, thinking about the thesis now going back a few years and that if I would have, have asked for every possible element to de-risk the thesis, almost all of that has basically come true. So couple that with a risk-off environment over the past 12 months. We have stocks that are at a pretty deep discount to their high print with a thesis that's never looked better. So um, bring us up to the present, running Uranium Insider. It's become a full-time thing. Uh, I have a small, dedicated team behind me. Uh, my partner is a retired hedge fund guy. He's been you know, as many years in the markets as I have on the planet and a lot of experience in the resource space. So we have a good team there. Um, we're super excited about this investment right now. We've been in it for multiple years. It's been it's been a pain trade for anybody that's entered the space in the last one or two years because of the risk-off environment. And uh, but right now, the de the de-risking that has happened in this sector is is phenomenal. So we're very very constructive going forward here. Obviously, the I letter is a hundred percent focused to uranium. Is it, where does your focus lie as a, as as a personal investor? Are you sort of all you know? I hear some people say, you know, I'm. My portfolio is 100% in uranium, and, and I sort of think about that like, hmm, that's sort of interesting. <laughs> like, are, are you one of those, or are you sort of diversified, and, and you just happen to, to write a newsletter about, about uranium as well? I'm definitely diversified, but not extremely diversified. Um, the uranium as a whole across uh, 10 positions is my largest allocation of my investable net worth. Uh, but I do also own other sectors. I own some oil uh, and some offshore oil services plays. I own some <laughs> precious metals, both physical and miners and streamers. And, you know, kind of a smattering of, of other plays. So I don't own only uranium. Um, and we do, you know, we always recommend in every single monthly newsletter, make a rational allocation to the sector. It's It's notoriously volatile. When the sector moves, it really punches above its weight. You don't have to have all your eggs in this basket to see substantial returns on your positions when the market really goes. And it's volatile to the downside as well. So <laughs> I think being 100% exposed to the sector, you just you you have to have A, just insanely pure conviction, which I do, and B, 
you just have to have risk tolerance and the ability to stomach unbelievable, you know, five to 10% whole portfolio moves on a daily basis. And that's sure. not many people can stomach that, you know. I, I've described uranium as the prettiest partner and the craziest one, sometimes on the same day, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good analogy. I love that. I love well, that. Listen, let's keep it to analogies. I have my Cubs jersey on because I'm a Chicago <laughs> kid at heart, right? And it's always Cubs, not Sox. Uh, if we're talking baseball parlance, and I've, I've heard you use uh, baseball parlance in the past, where are we in this uranium bull market that I think, without putting words in Nick's mouth, but I will, I think both Nick and I agree that we're in the early stages of a uranium bull market that's going to be absolutely volatile to the upside, but volatile the whole way through as it typically is, right? Where do you see it in baseball parlance? If it's a game, what inning are we in? I think the easy answer, the quick answer for that would be probably around the second inning. Um, if you would have asked me 18 months ago, I probably would have said the third inning. I think the equities kind of got away from themselves. And we had this exogenous event come in, which was Sprott taking over Uranium Participation Corporation and hitting the ground running with their ATM and buying up 15 million pounds of uranium over the course of three months, pushing the price hmm. from the low 30s into the 60s. Uh, or it was into the 50s at the time, but it was still a 60% move in the commodity in less than yeah. three months. So at the time, it was very... Um, it was, it was a very euphoric move. This was late Q2 into Q3 of 2021. And nobody knew. It was basically like, okay, if the capital flows keep coming into this vehicle, this is going to continue to move. So um, everybody, including ourselves at the time, was like, if these flows keep coming, this is game on. And this is it. You know, this is that moment. And we had secondary demand from these financial players pushing the market. Um, that, of course, pulled back. Uh, starting, let's say, December 2021, a few months later, we kind of hit risk-off markets, rising rate environment. And SPUT, uh, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, has been purchasing far less volume over uh, relative to a period of time spanned than they did in those first few months, right? So that was like this, boom, hit the market. Um, so at that time, I was like, okay, we're getting into this market a little bit. And, you know, price targets for equities and for the commodity and all of that were like, hmm, okay, if this keeps happening... We're going to get into the fourth and fifth inning here within the next six months. But of course, that pulled back. Since then, we've seen a 30 to 40 to 50% pullback. Some of the small caps have even seen greater pullbacks than that from the high prints of October, November 2021 to now. Uh, the ETFs are down 30, 30% roughly from there. Um, and so I would say we've seen a big reset in equities valuations. So, of course, if you're looking at, you can look at it in two ways. You can look at it what inning are we are for the equities, what inning are we are for the commodity. And I would say for the equities, we've got a reset. I think we're back into kind of maybe the second inning here. Um, and for the commodity, I think we might be, honestly, even though we're up from 18 to 50, the contracting cycle has literally just started. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the most exciting part of this for me is that so much, so many constructive things have happened for this investment leading up to this point, yet the real reason to be long the commodity has literally just started right now. So we had 114 million pounds contracted in 2022. Um, and to put that into uh, into context, there's about 180 million pounds consumed on an annual basis for global nuclear reactors. So we're still not even to that replacement rate level of contracting. We just went through 10 years of less than replacement rate contracting. And this is exactly that commodity cycle I was mentioning. So we had, you know, we had the early 90s to about 2004 where we saw less than replacement rate contracting. And of course, from 93 to 2013, we had megatons to megawatts. That was a down blending of nuclear warheads into enriched uranium. 
That was 20 million pounds a year for 20 years. That was the biggest mine on the planet. Uh, it was an odd, like Mike, Mal Mike Alkin from Satium Co. puts it, that was an off-balance sheet asset for nuclear utilities to have megatons and megawatts. That's not here any longer. But we had this big period of under under contracting leading up to a period of only about five or six years of over contracting during the peak of the bull market, the previous bull market. So that's just starting. Um, that I think is honestly at the very, very beginning. And that could that literally could go for nine innings. And and we have yet to see a single year of replacement rate contracting. I think year one is twenty twenty three for hundred and eighty million pounds plus contracted for long term contracts. You know what's interesting about that, John? I was speaking with a couple of the bigger uranium companies, uh, re real companies, right, that were actually at PDAC, and I heard the exact same thing. I've heard net sellers are turning into net buyers. Um, they're nibbling away. They're not coming in and rushing all the way in. Uh, but the conversations, and I'm not privy to, 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 to disclose those, the conversations that they explained they were having were very, very bullish for the last quarter of this year as it relates to the utilities coming in and starting to write checks at much, much higher prices. We saw it recently with Encore, and it was interesting to me with Encore that Encore wouldn't disclose who the client was and the price at which it contracted, but it was very keen to disclose that it did so at a much higher price and that there was a floor set on that much higher price for that supply that they went ahead and essentially hedged, right? But the sentiment was very, very bullish for near-term producers that have turnkey operations and the bulk of them um, don't want to edge. They believe that the best part of this cycle is 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 definitely ahead of us. And they they they, they were as bullish as you and I are here for the end of the year. Do you see it that way, Q4 type of movement, or do you think it, it goes into 2024? Well, uh, in, in t like Q4 until we see more movement in the price. Is that what you're asking? Spike spike price, correct. That's that's a little bit tough to call. So the spot price right now is moved essentially by two two factors. One is uh, is there is some buying happening by other entities that are not the financial players, right? So the Sprott Fisk Uranium Trust um, primarily, but there's other there's other funds that are buying. There's producers that are buying. You know, Cameco has been nibbling here and there in the spot market. Um, you know, they they've been trying to buy underneath fifty dollars and they're not getting filled. They're getting front run by some other entities. Um, so $50 is the floor, in my opinion, um, and I'm not the first one to say that. So I think up is pretty much the downside risk here for the commodity is very, very small. Um, how soon it moves is based on two factors. One, whether or not we see more capital flows coming into the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust in the near to midterm. That's something I can't predict. And if you can predict it or anybody can predict it, um, you're a better man than I. I don't know whether those capital. I didn't expect them to raise any money in these risk-off environments, and they raised uh, close to a hundred million dollars. Uh -huh. uh, you know, late January, early, early February. I um, mean, bought you know, a couple million pounds, so that was interesting. Um, they let's see. So the capital flows is one reason that spot price will will move up in a meaningful manner. Another way will be uh, arbitrage between the long-term market and the spot market, and that would happen by traders. And that, at this point, is dictated largely by interest rates. So the fact that we're, uh, you know, the capital markets and the interest rates are where they are is kind of pinning the spot price to a relative place uh, to the long-term price. So the term price is going to have to jump up to pull the spot price up, lacking um, large volumes of purchasing in the spot market, which at this point is basically going to come from the secondary demand of financial players. The utilities are not going into the spot market largely. I mean, with very, very, very few exceptions. Why? 
small amounts of volume moves the price and the price moving up for that affects the price that uh, they and other utilities pay for the market reference portion of their contracts, legacy contracts. So they don't want to move the price up. It's not in their best interest. So they're not there. There's also not a lot of volume there. So their needs are typically higher than a trader or uh, somebody buying as secondary demand. So it's difficult to say whether or not the spot price is going to move drastically in the short term. I do think the spot price and the term price are materially higher by the end of the year. Um, when it starts to move is tougher. I think that largely has to do with factors that are completely uh, not irrelevant, but not uh, not dictated by the uranium market itself. So that has to do with the broad market and you know Fed policy and stuff like that that I I'm not going to pontificate on. You know we we follow the uranium market. Of course, the equities are affected by that, but it's very hard to predict those capital flows. So. Uh, we don't rely on the capital flows. We have a longer term outlook. We're here for the contracting cycle. We're here from the supply and demand that we can actually model out based on nuclear utilities demand and expected production. And those numbers are um, shocking. And then the secondary demand is kind of this other element that's sort of like that X factor that nobody can model, but it's going to be there and everybody knows what it can do now. That's kind of the cool part. If we go back to a couple of moments in time where capital flows came in the spot price jumped up you know 50 60 percent in a couple months it's like okay that is there do i think financial players will eventually take advantage of that opportunity yes i do do i think it's going to happen next week or next month or two months from now i i have no idea so a matter of when but we don't know the when pretty much yeah all right i like it i like it do you think uh let's jump to the equities for a second so uh, there's obviously a large retail following in in uranium, and they're voracious, right? You go to the conferences and you see the the room is is packed. This was standing room only at the VRIC for the two uranium panels that I was on recently, and it sort of has like this almost Wall Street bets aura around it, right? Like when I was yeah. asking for questions about this podcast on Twitter, you know, one of the questions is when moon, <laughs> when, when moon. I mean, that's the question, right? So, um, and, and I'm not necessarily sure that that's the, the right way to go about, you know, this isn't, um, you know, YOLO call buying in the, in the uranium sector. At least that's not how uh, I approach it, right? You know, I, I have some speculations, maybe 10 to 15% of my investable assets, uh, across the gamut from, you know, uranium ETFs all the way down into the small explorers. So given the market action of late, I'd like to hear your opinion on the the current value of uh, uranium equities. And, and, and just for disclosure, I think they're getting relatively cheap. Like, uh, you know, I was <laughs> buying energy fuels today, for example. And so, um, well, your thoughts, I guess. Before, before before you reply with your thoughts, John, when moon was my question too. So if you want to take a stab at that, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> For sure. Uh, yeah, when moon, unfortunately, that's probably the most frequently question I get asked. But, uh, you know, it's an understandable question. I mean, you have to, I think fundamental investments take more patience than technical trades, obviously. Um, and it's difficult to, I mean, that's one thing that I think that we, do a good job of with the newsletter is to um, to pass on conviction based on our analysis of the sector and where we believe it's going, right? And that conviction is necessary to hold through these types of choppy markets or or have the balls to buy when the sector is acting like it is right now, right? Um, I agree with you, Nick. I think uh, I think valuations have pulled back significantly where they're they're getting pretty attractive here for for entries for anybody that's not positioned already. 
Um, the when is difficult because, you know, I've been saying three to five years for about, you know, three years. And so we're kind of at that beginning of that three to five year period part. You know, we shifted that to two to four years about six months ago. And so I think the when, it's it really depends on whether or not we do see that price spike that would come from financial interests. And I do think it's going to happen, but I'm not betting on it happening. Um, I do think we'll get to a point where we see uh, the dollar start to fall, where we see Fed policy kind of stagnate, perhaps even pull back if that happens. But either way, I think we're going to see, I don't think we're going to see a, like a deflationary crash type recession. I think it's going to continue to be an inflationary environment, even if we do get down to, let's say, a 4% inflation CPI in the States here. Um, you know, we probably will see decently high rates for a while, but at least when the market has, um, when the market can kind of see where things are going and there's less uncertainty, that's when it tends to do a bit of recovering. Uh, with all of that said, I think energy and commodities are going to have an epic decade across the board. And I don't think uranium is going to be spared from that, from that run. And also the fundamentals for uranium are completely unique. Uh, you know, it tends to couple with certain things when it's not really being driven on its own uh, metrics, which typically is the spot price. So it might couple to the strength of the dollar or lack thereof. It might couple to the movement of oil, sometimes natural gas. And often, you know, for the past 10 months, it's been mostly coupled, honestly, to the S&P. Periods of outperformance, periods of underperformance. But but like a year and a half ago to almost two years ago, it's at similar levels. I'm talking about URA relative to the S&P 500, right? We've had some big runs up, some big moves down. We're pretty much right there in this giant flag pattern on a relative basis. So when moon, <laughs> I would be very, very surprised if we don't see uh, $75 term price and $65 spot or somewhere in that realm by the end of the year. And I would be really surprised if we don't see a very, very large move for the entire sector within, let's say, 18 to 24 months. Um, and I do see the entire possibility of a very long-term, uh, more steady bull market if we don't see capital flows go into spot and see financial players go after physical. Um, just because everything is sort of moving in that direction towards an embracing of nuclear. And I understand the supply and demand um, numbers and, and where they're headed. And it's it's uh, higher prices are absolutely coming. It's like, I don't know what the S&P is going to do next week. I do know where uranium will be a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, and it's going to be materially higher. I'll give you an easy question because I think I called you John instead of Justin, so I'll give you a softball real quick. But I think it's an important one, jokes aside, for the average speculator that, and then listen, I write a newsletter, have uranium picks in there, and then most of them have done well and a couple of, you know, trended downward the way that all of them have here in the last six months, especially, right? But for the average speculator that's looking to allocate capital, what advice would you give them? Would you tell them that the reward is going to be worth the wait, regardless of when moon, whether when moon is December of this year or December of next year? The reward typically in uranium bull cycles is far, far more than you can see in most other sectors in a much shorter period of time. Is it one of the most frustrating cycles to be patient with? Absolutely. But do you see it that same way? Do you think the reward is going to be worth the patients, regardless of when moon. Well, hundred percent. I mean, I wouldn't have my own money on the line if I didn't think so. I mean, it wouldn't be my largest position if I didn't truly believe that. I mean, my I I, I eat what I'm cooking. So, 
Um, Love it. And to answer Nick's question, you know, the total market cap of the sector right now That's is right. about $35 million. Uh, so, and it peaked out in the previous cycle. And, re, and mind you, this is 15 years ago. Uh, it peaked out at a, about $140 billion. So even to just get remotely close to where we were in the previous cycle, we've got multiples to the upside. Um, I, with a very small exception, we've seen a couple of moments in time over the past few years where we've seen decent capital flows into the sector and the, and the moves from the equities have been um, exaggerated to the upside, let's say. So for example, when, when Sput came in and bought Uranium, when their ATM just went live August of 2021, between between that moment, so early September 2021 and November, so that was a two-month time period, there were some equities that doubled and tripled in those two months. Sure. Um, and so, it, yes, they, they fly to the upside when it moves. So I certainly believe so. And I believe, like, this trend is just getting started. It's a little bit of a of an echo chamber, you know, on Twitter. And, you know, like like Nick, like you were mentioning, you know, the, the uranium investors tend to be very emotional creatures and very... Um, emphatic about their investments and very attached to to the sector uh, performing and outperforming. Um, but all of that said, it's like this hasn't even really begun yet. You know, and right. just the fact that we've been following it for so long and we've done well so far, um, this really hasn't even started in terms of real money coming into the sector. You know, we talk pretty frequently with um, John Chapaglia, the CEO of Sprott, and. Uh, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust was his baby, so he was working on that for almost three years before they took over Uranium Participation Corporation, that deal. Um, and he he really sees where this is going, and he understands these capital markets very well. And he says, he talks to uh, to institutional investors all the time, and he's spoken with some some funds that have assets under the management in you know the tens of billions, hundreds of billions, um, and they, they get it, they're aware, they are bullish, they like nuclear, they want to own it. They can't touch it. There is not a single tradable equity in the space that has sufficient liquidity for them to take a sizable enough position to move the needle for the fund and have the liquidity for them to maneuver within the sector. So, you know, according to him, and I totally agree, it's like volume and liquidity and size is going to beget liquidity and size. And that, in my opinion, will turn into somewhat of a snowball effect. So it's not necessarily just the buy low, the sell high, it's like act like big money managers, they need liquidity. That's paramount. That is the number one issue for them is the lack of liquidity in the space. So as it grows, it should attract larger players. And um, I, I really think the big moves for this space have, have yet to happen. I think we've had the first big leg up, the first big bear trap pull back, and now we're ready for the next. And that should happen at some point uh, in the nearest future. Is that sort of a chicken and... Uh... And the egg, though, you know, if you need larger vehicles and more liquidity to get players to come in and you say, well, as it grows, it'll attract them. Well, well where do you get that capital for it to grow to attract the, those larger players if um, those larger players can't come in to give you that capital to allow for larger vehicles and more liquidity? Is it sort sure. of good? That's a good question. So, for example, there's about a half dozen funds that are mostly if not entirely dedicated to the uranium equities um so between segra capital and sachem cove for example they i believe jointly together they manage about half a billion and they're fully allocated into the uranium sector so you have these i mean that's a lot of money to me but th these are smaller funds right and they're they're aware of the space so um you know funds that are managing somewhere in the tens of millions to the few billions they can definitely 
take positions in the space with sufficient liquidity. Um, and then, of course, when retail comes in, you know, they actually can move the needle a bit. So um, it's happened in the past where we get up to that $45, $50 billion market cap. And um, at that point, that was when we started saw that first big pullback. So um, that'll have to, we, new money is going to have to come in. So right now, just with this risk-off environment and sentiment being so low, you've got kind of the diehards and the the believers in the thesis, and then you have some of these mid-sized, smaller mid-sized spuns that are there's still um, very long uranium equities. But um, for the big money to come in, we're going to have to see more momentum to the upside and see some of these smaller and mid-sized institutional players uh, uh, reposition or, or get new positions in the sector as well to get us up to that level where the tens and hundreds of billions of AUM funds can can touch Cameco or or Sput or whatever it might be. Nick, you took my question. I was just thinking about the chicken and the egg analogy, and I was going to ask who owns the hen house, right? Because that's that's exactly the situation we're in. Justin, you did a great job answering that question. Got to ask a couple of questions that we received uh, in advance from readers and subscribers and people that were curious to tune in. If you don't mind, Justin, Nick, is that all right? Yeah, go for it. Awesome. Let's get into it. Um, what's his hedge? Someone asked. I feel a lot of investors can be overexposed to one commodity. You've been very clear, Justin, that you have the bulk of your capital allocated in this space, but you also mentioned a couple of other speculations and investments that you use to hedge that uranium portfolio. Can you speak to that part a bit? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, just basic diversification is important for, especially for newer investors, you know, just capital preservation principles that are, that are recommended across regardless of whether you're invested in uranium or not, whether you're a technical trader or a momentum investor or, or a fundamental investor, you know, I think basic investing principles are pretty crucial. So, um, you know, we always recommend, like I said, make a rational allocation, avoid margin, avoid short dated call <laughs> options. Uh, you know, don't trade on margin, don't use leverage and, uh, and, and have a diverse basket even within this sector. So those are just kind of basics. That's not exactly a hedge. Um, I do have a market, a general market short on currently, and that's that's just based on you know a general kind of I don't know where this market's going to go. I don't know what Jay Powell is going to say tomorrow. I don't know what the non-farm payroll is going to be. Like I, that's beyond my pay grade. So in this environment of not knowing, high interest rates, et cetera, risk off. I keep I don't keep, but I'm in and out of market shorts as a small position as a hedge. Uh, if it works against me and goes to zero, that's usually put spreads for me. That's what I'm comfortable with. That goes to zero is totally fine because the rest of my book probably did well. If the rest of my book pulls back and I hold through that pullback, which I've done for many years, and I personally am very comfortable with that, um, then I make money on that on that put spread and I can allocate that into more longs. And you know, in this type of environment where the risk of some sort of liquidity crisis or downside washout is greater than zero, um, I keep some cash. So until I'm super confident in kind of the health of markets generally and the bullish trajectory of the equities in the short term, I usually keep some cash on the side. And uh, if I'm if I'm short term bearish, I'll have some sort of uh, put spread as a as a hedge. Well, I think we're you know a couple quarters away from a sort of risk on environment. You know, uh, from a macro perspective, I think yeah, higher rates for longer. Uh, the recession is gonna. Uh, catalyzed here in the next couple of quarters. And at least for, for me, I've been telling investors to use that time in the commodity space to buy these depressed prices that you're going to see simply because um, whether it's a copper stock or a gold stock or uranium stock, it's still a stock. 
And if the market needs liquidity and investors need liquidity, those stocks are going to get sold down along with the the, the broader equities. Um, let, let's talk about this this not theme, but you know, uh, I'm sure you've seen you know Warren or Irwin out there in the in the in the panels and and YouTube videos lately calling for you know not moon basically. You know, he says he's bullish. He says that. Um, it's going to be more orderly to the upside, not necessarily this, you know, 100,000% paladin gains that we saw in the last cycle. Um, and coupled with that, I often wonder myself, right, why does the can seemingly always get kicked down the road for for uranium when we see, you know, you mentioned at the top of the hour or the top of the podcast, these these catalysts, these fundamentals that have all lined up, right? For a while it was well, we got to see Japan come back online. Well, Japan's not committed to coming back online. Or we've got to get the Democrats on board. Well, the Democrats are on board. They extended the Abo Canyon. They got money in the Inflation Reduction Act. Or we need to see the utilities come back in, which now we're starting to see the utilities come back in. How do you rectify or justify that in your mind when you see all these fundamentals and catalysts happening, but it doesn't translate into um, higher uranium prices? And then um, I don't know if you've had any thoughts on, on what Warren's been saying, but a lot of people are very interested in that. For sure. Yeah. Um, I'll answer that in a second. I just wanted to follow up on what you stated prior to that. Um, the fact that uranium equities have been uh, kind of washed around with the broad market. Um, and you know, that's only painful really if you're completely all in and you're, and you just have to wait through it. Right. Which a lot of people are in that position and I totally get it. But when you have a sector, if you're fundamentally bullish on, and it's going down for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with the fundamentals of that sector, to me, that's just like, oh, that's the best. That's the best. That's my favorite thing. Uh, because I, my confidence is so great in the sector that if something else is moving the stocks down, it's like, I get really, really greedy in that environment. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. But to answer your question with regards to Warren Irwin's comments and kind of the can being kicked down the road, I would argue that the can isn't really being kicked down the road because we've seen the commodity go from $18 to 50. I mean, it's tripled. So, you know, Warren has made comments, which by the way, I like Warren, uh, and I have no problem with his commentary. I mean, I disagree with it, but um, it doesn't bother me on a visceral level. Some people are like so pissed about it. It's like, no, just let the guy have a different opinion. You know? okay. It doesn't really bother me. Welcome to 2023 um, and, in America, yeah. right? <laughs> in, in Canada too, yeah. apparently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he's done well for himself. You have to put comments in the context, too. You know, he manages money. Like, he's not a retail investor with 50 grand invested. Like, he, managed, he manages tens of millions of dollars of other people's money, and he's sitting on paper gains. So he's going to be more cautious than somebody that's YOLOing into this thing. They're asking when moon, right? Like, uh, so you, have to put, you always have to put comments into context. And But as far as the can being kicked down the road, it's like, so has supply... Uh, has there been more above ground mobile inventory than previously expected? Yes. Has it kept the price down? No. So the fact that there was supply around that was in greater amount that, first of all, it's a sector that's basically impossible to tell exactly how much uranium is out there and sitting in a can above ground able for sale. Okay. So the guys like from Seisham and Segura who have 25,000 hours in the sector, they don't know. They can ballpark it. All right. So you can ballpark the oversupply from the previous decade, let's say three, 400 million pounds. How much didn't go to China? 150 million pounds? Then you can start looking at uh, the deficits from the supply deficits from, from the shutdown of MacArthur River, the shutdown of Lanker Heinrich in Namibia, um, uh, the brief shutdown, the pullback in production from Kazakhstan, the pullback in production 
of a cigar during COVID, uh, you know, all these other elements. And you can start to work into that supply and, and realize that we are or close to working through that above ground mobile inventory. And of course, we've seen the price response based on volume purchasing in the spot market, which is uh, just, you know, prima facie evidence that there's basically no supply because it, not much buying is pushing the price up. Um, and so just, I mean, again, as a basic tenet of commodity investing, price moving up means there's not oversupply, right? So to go from 18 to 50, that means that there's not supply greater than what the demand has been. It's been exactly uh, the opposite. Now, there was kind of a unique phenomenon with that original purchasing with from Sprott, which was something that uh, the guys from Segra will call uh, reverse carry trade. So you have carry traders, these are uranium traders, that would um, <clears throat> they would sign contracts with utilities, usually for a midterm period of time. It's not a 10-year contract. It's not a spot market purchase. It's like two, three, four, maybe five years would be a carry trade, usually on the three or four-year range, right? They would sign a contract with the utility that would promise delivery of X amount of pounds starting in X year at X price. Then they would add their uh, their cost of holding that on their books, their cost of capital, whatever their profit margin is, they would go into the into the spot market and buy that uranium. This was something that was an absolute boon for traders and utilities uh, during the later part of the last decade. Okay, so we worked through a ton of material via the carry trade. Carry traders sometimes get a bad name because it was bad for the producers. So Cameco is sitting over here with $10 million a month to keep MacArthur River on care and maintenance saying, hey guys, you should lock in some contracts. We're looking out here. I know you're uncovered in 2027. Why aren't you calling us? Why are you going to the carry traders? Well, why would they pay Cameco 45 bucks a pound when they can go to the carry trader or lock in a three-year carry trade for 28? Okay, they did that over and over and over. So what happened when Sput started buying is the price uh, went into backwardation. And so we had the spot price jump above the term price pretty steeply. And you had these carry traders sitting on uranium. Hey, we don't have to deliver this stuff until 2024. Why don't we sell it to Sprott? We'll go back in and sign a midterm contract contract with the Uzbeks or with the Kazakhs, and we'll cover our we'll cover our carry trade contract. So they that was another 10, 15, maybe 20 million pounds that came that were held in carry, promised to utilities that came out into the market and was sold to Sprott during that period of backwardation. So that was kind of this synthetic supply. And guess what? The carry trade's over. The carry traders are, last year, they were 3% of spot market volume. The year before, they were 30% of spot market volume. The carry trade is over. They can't operate in this industry environment, okay? So basically what I'm saying is the next time this happens, when we have a backwardated market, there isn't going to be as much, if any, of a buffer of this reverse carry trade, these pounds coming out of held in carry to keep the price relatively stable. And even with those price, those pounds coming out of that were held in carry, we still saw a, you know, a $15 jump in the price. So there's, you know, there's these unique elements in the market that are important to understand. It's like where do these pounds come from? Well, that's where they came from. And in understanding that, you know, that informs our decisions going forward and our outlook on the market. So um, you know, Warren's Warren's big thing is he has supposedly an industry player who's he's yet to name tell him that there's uh, you know a billion pounds in inventory. There's plenty of supply out there. Um, and the first part, he's right. There's more than a billion pounds in inventory. Guess what? Those are held by nuclear utilities and governments. These are strategic inventories. These are not for sale in the market. If they were for sale in the market, you'd see them being sold into the market, and they aren't. 
and they are unlikely to be going forward. So um, there's always a lot of inventory, just the nature, the slow state of the nuclear fuel cycle. A utility takes 18 months to go from mined uranium to a fabricated fuel. It's not a just-in-time market, so they have to hold inventories. Inventories exist. They always have. They always will. And historically speaking, we're on the lower end of inventory levels for both the U.S. and, and the EU. Um, so this, not only do we think, do we know we're going into a contracting cycle, we believe that there's going to be some element of restocking inventories, which is why we think we're going to go greater than that replacement rate. So um, I disagree with his take that there will be <laughs> abundant supply coming into the market at, you know, 65 75 $80 a pound uranium. We'll see who's right when we get there. I like it. Gerardo, any other questions? I got one more I, and then I, we can wrap up. I got to play devil's advocate really quick because we let sure. our readers and subscribers do it to us with the newsletters. And, and you know, because you've been writing one for a while now, right, Justin? So readers love to quote my words back to me and then follow back up if I get one or two wrong and then see where I where, where I am in my opinions and my positions. But And I have a couple of people begging me to do this. So I'm going to fire a couple away at you real quick and just let you address them real quick. Go for it. All right. Peak in less than 18 months. Do you still believe that one? Peak as in peak uranium price or peak equities price? Yeah, this is something they said you said, and I, I, I'm i not privy to the context, so I'll let you define what you think peak might peak in 18 months. Do I think, so we peaked out, April of last year was, I think, 64 bucks a, a pound. Oh, 100%. We'll, we'll peak above that in 18 months. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Excellent. Still a great buying opportunity. I guess you said this on November the 21st, and somebody recorded it, wrote it down, took a picture. I don't know. <laughs> November of 2021? Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, that was that was when Sprott was going nuts. So nobody knew if the capital was going to keep flowing. Um, that So he, he may or may not have been a member of our newsletter. What we recommend is if you are new to the sector or you're just buying, you spread out in tranches over multiple months. Multiple tranches over multiple months. So uh, perhaps this person is sour because they went all in. Uh, but yes, I mean, if a stock is on our list, it's a buy, basically, if you're just coming into the sector. We always recommend have a seat at the table, regardless where the sector is at, because it can move so suddenly and so violently. But to spread those tranches out, because most of the time, this market will give you opportunities like we're having right now. So is this a buying opportunity right now? 100%. Send them in a super low. Uh, the ETFs or trade, the RSI is, is at super oversold levels for a lot of the stocks in the space, including the ETFs. Our relative basis compared to the broad market, we're right at this lower trend line and bottoming out in RSI. So I like it here for an entry. Um, would I still hold some cash in case things go south? Yes, I would. Excellent. Last one. Why is Encore going down? Is it just general market um, trading or is it company specific because of the capital raised? I would say both. Um, Encore's made a couple of really, really excellent deals uh -huh. uh, in terms of setting themselves up to be basically the ISR producer in the United States. Right. Unfortunately, those deals have come with <laughs> a lot of shares. Yep. So uh, when they when they bought Azarga Uranium and got the Dewey Burdock project and yep. the Gas Hills project in Wyoming, that was, uh, you know, multiple 10, I don't have the number off the top of my head. There was a lot of shares that got dumped into Azarga shareholders' laps and they've been dishing those out right when the markets went risk off. So it was kind of a uh, bad timing to have your share count blow out. But um, they're the 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 valuation now. I mean, what are they? Two hundred fifty million market capitalization U.S. Uh, with and they're going to be producing in a couple of months. Compelling. Like, okay, yeah, this is a very very compelling valuation for the company. But I would say it's risk off uh, plus um, the deals that they made and of course the raises that have gone along, especially with the most recent deal buying Alta Mesa from Energy Fuels, which is 
the best ISR project in the state of Texas and one of the best in the whole country. Good stuff. Nick, you had a question. I'll let you fire, sir. So it's it's the last one and it's sort of a wrap up and it's, you know, what have you not necessarily gotten wrong, but what will you have done differently over the past 18 months or, or two years? And, and I'll go first, you know, um, you just mentioned, you know, uh, Azarga getting taken out by EU and, and, and then new EU shareholders selling shares. We were some of those people. So we were Azarga shareholders. Um, we obviously got taken out for, for Encore shares. And um, in my newsletter, we sold those Encore shares uh, several months ago at higher prices. And um, what I think I would have done differently is sell my other some of my other plays as well. Like we sold Cameco, for example, but we didn't sell Sky Harbor. Um, I wish I would have sold more knowing, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but I sure. saw the bear market coming, right? I was selling other broad market equities and I still let my conviction in the utility in the in the uranium space not yeah. get the better of me. I mean, I'm not down on Sky Harbor, but could have taken profits and bought back in for sure. So, how do you think about you know hindsight? Sure, it's it's a little bit. I uh, the the question for me is a little bit complicated because I, if I think back, um, you know, as a newsletter writer, what I would have done differently um, for the content that I put out versus my own portfolio. Because for my own portfolio. I don't really trade the uranium stocks very much. I, I don't really like creating this tax events and trading it out. And I'm in a position where, uh, you know, I can add as as time goes along. So and I've been in this in this trade for such a long time that <clears throat> I'm used to having volatile pullbacks. I'm used to holding through those and adding on weakness because I still see so much upside in front of us that I'm not really trying to time and in and out in trades. So if I'm if I'm going to trade out of something and create a tax event, I have to actually factor that into how well I have to time re-entry if it's something I want to own for the extent of the bull market. So most of our positioning, in fact, all of our positioning, with exception of of the options trades that we do once in a while, um, have the intent of of holding for a longer period of time. With that said, I think that um, and of course hindsight is twenty twenty. I'm noticing that members want to hear when to buy and sell all the time. They want to trade in and out. So they look back and say, man, I wish I had sold in April 2021 or 2022. I look back and I don't see that at all. I just added in the summer of 2022. So I just continue to build on a portfolio that I hold for the long term if my outlook for the sector is for the long term. So I don't really have any regrets on that front. Um, I think that, I think that honestly, Based on our, our retention rate for our members, I think what we're doing is is working, essentially. I think that our members are appreciating what we're writing to them because our retention rate is very, very high, even in markets like we've seen over the last year, which has been frustrating. Um, so I'll acknowledge that for sure. But you know, our outlook for the sector is for the long term, and it's extremely bullish. So we tend to hold uh, and we tend to um, not trade a lot in and out of positions unless something fundamentally changes for the company. That's when we sent. That's when we'll we're happy to sell even at a loss if we want to move out of something and into something higher conviction or hold some cash. Um, so there's you know there's not much I would have done differently if you say what would I have, what did I get wrong? Well, I got wrong what everybody got wrong, which is just timing. This has taken a lot longer to play out for the equities. But even in saying that, if I look at charts, you know, everything that we own is up from when we entered. So it's like, you know, we're still up over 300% since we started the newsletter in August of 2019. And it's like, 
I'm not going to apologize for that. So, you know, there's there there's what did I get wrong? Sure, we got elements wrong, but we change our outlook when the when the facts change. So to say we had a certain price target based on a certain price of uranium, but not knowing the uranium price would move to that point in the span of five weeks, what, you expect us to stick to those equities price targets if it moved in five weeks instead of two years? No, it's absolutely absurd. So, um, you know, if, of course, everybody gets things wrong when they're trying to predict the future. But sure. on balance, we've been right about the trajectory of the commodity. And I think that's where it's going to continue to move uh, in our direction. Sounds like the mandate for you and, and subscribers is clear. Invest for the thesis, and you believe that thesis is intact, correct? Yeah, our mandate is to be long the commodity we're bullish on, and then we cover. Um, our mandate is not to trade in and out of, of stocks, hoping to skim profits um, while we create tax events. Of course, we have, you know, we're in the US, we got plenty of people in the US and Canada and places where they are. Uh, but there's plenty of people on our newsletter that are from around the world that don't have, that aren't burdened by the same. Uh, tax regime that that I personally am. So we have to take that into account as well. But yeah, no, we've got a long-term vision. And honestly, it's like there's been so many times with this sector where something comes literally out of the blue that absolutely nobody can predict. And the sector just goes on a moonshot. And it's like one day is gone and you missed a 15% move. And as a uranium newsletter with essentially a mandate to belong the commodity, we don't want to miss those. We don't want to miss that opportunity when it runs. And it's going to run. It's just very hard in time when that happens. So uh, for us, it's it's mainly buy and hold, uh, even though we do track the technicals and recommend, you know, uh, certain points of where, where you should be holding or where you should be buying if you are still entering into positions. I encourage everybody to go watch The Big Short, which is one of my favorite movies about how profitable it can be to ride the thesis out and how much longer it can take, even if you're right along the way, right? Yeah, you're not. I'm. I'm not wrong. I'm just early. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, anything else? No. Uh, you know, you're talking to a couple of uranium bulls, so it's it's always good to talk shop, and and we'd love to have you back uh, to talk. I think more about the newsletter and more about the uranium space as the as the thesis does sort of um, unfold. So you want to tell people where to find you? I know it's right above your head there, but um, go ahead. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys, and I'm happy to come back whenever. Um, yeah, we're at UraniumInsider.com, and I'm I'm pretty um, pretty active on Twitter as well. Um, less active during these moments because people get pretty salty when the markets go risk off. But, uh, I can be active. <laughs> my favorite time. I, yeah, no, it is. It is. Uh, I I personally don't really stress out during these times, but I you know, uh, unfortunately, I tend to be a sentimental sap. So sometimes other people stress. You know, I I embody it a little bit, so it does affect me. But I still. Um, have learned at this point to act opposite my emotions with this market. So um, anytime we see sentiment lows coupled with RSI lows, like I'm I'm 100% a buyer. Uh, a buyer. Yeah. Love it. UraniumInsider.com. I'm supposed to remind everybody to go to dailyprofitcycle.com forward slash subscribe to get all of our updates and market commentary. I am Gerardo Del Real. Justin, this was fantastic. Mr. Nick Hodge, a pleasure as always. This was the 209th episode of our weekly therapy session that we call Investing in Bizarro World. Send us all with some words, Nick. That's it. See you later. Hey there, you independent-minded investor. If you like this video, make sure to tell us so by clicking the like button below. Subscribe to our channel so you never miss another one. And share it with everyone you know on social media. You can also click the link in the description below to check out more information-packed videos just like this one. Thanks for watching.